This is the ID Fanatic Podcast, coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto on Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. The podcast where we talk to real instructional designers for one half hour about their lives, their careers, and how they keep it all together. My guest today is Rick Jacobs, a learning strategist and builder of many things, based in Phoenix, Arizona, U.S. of A. Rick, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a Monday. I uh, takes a little while to clear the weekend cobwebs out. Yeah. I uh, I got the uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine yesterday. Oh wow! And you're still functioning. I'm happy. Well, I, I I wasn't functioning up to about an hour ago. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I yeah. had a. It uh, it was initially uh, didn't feel anything like and I I didn't get any soreness in my arm. I was they told me that would definitely happen, but it never did. But then about halfway through the day yesterday or, or last night, I got really really tired, and then I had a bit of a low grade fever, and uh, that lasted. I don't know. I was I was sort of out till most of the day today. Not to, not out, just you know low energy. Yeah. But. Yeah. Uh, my That's wife it. had, yeah, she mm-hmm. didn't have much of a problem with the first one. She got the uh, the two shot um, version, and uh, she was okay for the first one. But the second one kind of made her feel a little sick. But she's fine now. Oh, I still have yet to get it because I don't. I'm not essential enough. Well, this one is being rolled out in Canada for between 60 and 65. So it was a bit wow. of a loophole. I mean, generally it's just 80, 80 and, and older here. Wow. But it was approved for, it was tested on, it wasn't tested for people over 65 or something in the original trials. So they decided to just have this narrow, this narrow uh, eligibility and we, we got in. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. What? Um, so did you grow up in Arizona? No, I grew up in the United States. Um, I was probably... I was 15 by the time I stayed in one place longer than three years. And it was three years to the month. We were in Lubbock, Texas. Then we moved to New Hampshire. And from there, I've pretty much been moving in increments of three. So I was in Arizona for a year, uh, Lubbock, Texas for three, New Hampshire for six, Utah for nine, Virginia for 12. And I've been going backwards um, in, uh, I was in Austin for six and now I've been in Phoenix again since uh, 2016. And and why so much moving around? Um, when I was under 18, it was my father's, you know, grass is always greener. And when I over 18, um, just uh, I left New Hampshire for school. And then I left Utah to earn money and went to Virginia. Because in Utah, if you want to make a million dollars, you have to work a million hours. I think it's gotten better since I've lived there, but back then I was doing graphic design and the only way you could really make a decent living Mm -hmm. as a graphic designer is being an internationally world-renowned illustrator or graphic artist Mm. or get contracts outside of Utah. Mm. So I decided if I I get contracts outside of Utah, I might as well live outside of Utah. So we moved to Virginia. (coughs) Excuse me, I seem to have a hug in my throat. Yeah, I went to school for graphic design as well. Oh, really? But then in Nova Scotia, but then I, uh, I uh, sort of, it was hurting my back. It was 
dating myself, it was pro before everything was done with computer. So you yeah. had to draw everything and you're leaning over all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny how, you know, I, there's uh, I can't remember the name of the author, but someone wrote a book, uh, the uh, accidental instructional designer. And I think a lot of people go that way. Um, yeah. I actually got into instructional design. If we trace it all the way back to the very start, I started, it started with photography. Um, yeah. I was, uh, I picked up a camera um, when I was about 19, 20 years old to take pictures of sunsets. And within a year, I was doing model portfolios and editorial photography. And when I moved to Utah, the uh, it was a lot harder to make a living as a photographer because it's really difficult to do anything creative in Utah because people look at it and think, well, I can do that myself. Hmm. So I ended up being a photographer for a printing company that printed wedding invitations, which is big business in Utah back yeah. then. Yeah, well, it's a big photography business. Yeah, and so when I was bored, I don't sit still well, so I decided that uh, I was going to go learn everything I could about printing. So anytime we didn't have anything going on in the studio, I'd go help out in the, in the uh, print shop. Mm -hmm. It's when Apple was making first inroads of computerizing printing. So I learned everything I could about printing. And then they asked me if I wanted to help with typesetting. And I started working on Quark Express 3. Um, I think this is 1994, 1992. Yeah. And from there, I, I've never, my, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy and a master's degree in criminal justice. So I've never taken, never taken any art courses. So everything I've learned, it's been by seeking um, employment that would give me the knowledge that I wanted. So I got a job at the University of Utah to learn about software, got a job at a pre-press shop to learn how to turn software into printing projects. And within a year, I became a freelance graphic artist marketing, uh, and marketing advertising for international advertising agencies and, and national print houses. Mm -hmm. So that's what led me to, um, to Virginia. But I learned early on in my youth uh, right after graduating high school, that if you want to eat, you have multiple skill sets. And yeah. being a freelance graphic artist, I working in my basement, I wanted to make sure that I didn't become one of those weird cat collecting people that sit in their basement and, and work all the time. So I had a part-time job as a firearms instructor and a range officer for a law enforcement supply store. So by day, I was doing graphic arts. By night, I was running a range and training people in the use of firearms. And that's kind of how I got into instructional design was becoming a certified firearms instructor. Well, and it's a very, very obvious path. Yeah, it's, it's very clear. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's very, confused at all. When they look at, Everybody yeah. does that. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone's my, when they look at my, my background, my history and they see the jobs I've had, Yeah. you know, People say, well, you've done a lot of stuff. You don't look very focused. And my response really? is, I'm focused on something you can't see. Is that you know, what I have say? a strategy. I have a plan. Yeah. And I grew up not knowing that college was ever going to be an option. And I, you know, I started working at age 12. So if I wanted to learn something, I got a job doing it. Um, so when did you so get your master's? Did you go back for that or did you have it in the... Uh... Well... I finished, so I had to drop out of college because I developed a learning disability after a head injury. And oh. it took me about nine years of learning how to read and remember again. 
I went back for my final uh, two semesters at University of Utah, finished with what I call a BS and BS, my Bachelor's of Science in yeah. Philosophy. And I decided that I wanted to get it. I was working as a, as a deputy sheriff in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, and I decided I was going to go full time. I was on sabbatical to finish my degree. So I immediately got into a master's program at VCU in criminal justice, and I focused on, um, you know, training and training and training development as well as uh, counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Virginia, finished out my master's. My the month after I finished my master's, I injured my neck in a training accident, and a couple of years later I was medically retired. So, oh my goodness! Yeah, but a couple, the, of, couple of head yeah, injuries in there. Yeah, I, I bounce. I bounce well. Um, I people say ask me if I'm accident prone. I'm like, no, I'm just very active. I don't I don't yeah. like sitting still. I'm in my fifties. I'm on an international paintball magfed team. Um, and I hike a lot and spend a lot of time outdoors. But wow. uh, you know, i I was prancing around in, in Utah. I was I was asked to teach and train people in using software and graphic design. So I was developing curriculum, training people, teaching people in web design, uh, print design, typography, resume, and portfolio building, um, and all the softwares like Photoshop, Illustrator, Quark. And then outside of that, I was a firearms instructor, a range instructor, and I assisted in law enforcement training, usually as a role player. So in Virginia, I couldn't find a place. I was still doing graphic design. Couldn't find a place to, you know, uh, I couldn't find a law enforcement supply store to work for, but my sheriff's office had a part-time law enforcement program, part-time sheriff's, sheriff's deputy program. It's like, well, I'll put my money where my mouth is. I've been training with cops all this time. Let's see if I can be one. And became a sworn deputy in the year 2000. And within a year, I was made a field training officer and sent to general instructor school um, where I learned more about training and training development. Yeah. But it wasn't until 2007 when I was working on a contract for the federal government uh, as a counter surveillance, counter interrogation training for Defense Intelligence Agency. And I was approached by the people I worked for saying, hey, we have this, you know, you're, you're very good at what you're doing, you're very good at training. And we have an opening for instructional design. I was like, well, what's that? Yeah. They said, and they explained everything. I was like, you mean there's a science behind this? There's actual, this is a, this is a career field? I had no freaking idea. I was super excited about it. And so all these intuitions, all this time I've been helping people develop training, all this time I was uh, teaching in college and community college and criminal justice, as well as in graphic design and marketing to find out that there's actually something there's a science, there's a methodology, there's a process. And since then, I've been crazy excited about it. And I have a lot of opinions, as you've come to discover on my LinkedIn profile. And uh, now I'm the learning and development manager for Neo Home Loans. Yeah. And you describe this as your dream job. What, what is that about? Yeah. So I've, I've, uh, this might come as a surprise to people who don't know me, but I'm I actually, I'm pretty opinionated and I have opinions and I state them. And often I find that uh, people who don't want to hear them don't like them. So 
I've worked for <laughs> places that uh, were very, very oh, yeah. toxic. Yeah. That uh, you know there's a right way of doing things, yeah. and you have a leader who doesn't know your industry, doesn't know the the methodology, doesn't know the science, and doesn't trust their people and micromanages, and it makes the living hell. Yeah. Um, one of the last jobs I had, I was literally on blood pressure medication and I was raging on a regular basis because it, it was such a, a toxic environment where you try to make change, you try to demonstrate that there's a way of doing things to create proactive learning opportunities instead of being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff all the time. You could be you could be the the guardrail at the top of it to make sure the business isn't going into these crazy spirals of chaos. So that's the not dream. Um, the dream job now is I was hired to build a learning and development team for this brand new home mortgage company. Um, it's, uh, I've always been mission driven. What's that? Right From the bottom up, like you didn't, there was nothing yeah, there. From the bottom up. Yeah. This brokerage was stood up in January of this year. And I was hired the week before, my first week was the week before January 1st. So it was, it was a lot of fun. At first I didn't know what I was being hired for. Um, I understood that they had some ideas and they wanted to do some things, but I didn't quite understand what they, I, you know, I don't have any experience in the mortgage industry. Uh -huh. And I firmly believe you don't have to have experience in an industry that instructional design, learning development, learning architect, whatever you want to call yourself, right. we are subject matter experts in how to chunk complex information right. into we're digestible curious, bits. We're curious people. Yeah, we, exactly. We learn, we learn. That's another thing. I, I did journalism once, and it was a similar sort of thing. You become an expert on a topic for a few weeks or something while you're, yeah. while you're developing it, and then it goes out the other window. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm the subject matter expert in helping solve problems, analyze issues, create training, get people trained so that they perform well. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's law enforcement, web technology, mortgage industry, doesn't matter the industry. I can come in and find out what the processes, systems, and behaviors are, that are expected in, for someone to perform the role well and develop the training that maximizes yeah. that. And with NEO, I was hired to do that exactly. So I come into a swirling, swirling mass of excitement and uh, and um, motivation and dedication to the idea. With uh, you know, I'm told build the thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm really fortunate that I have leaders that know what they don't know and trust me yeah. to know what they need. Yeah, and the trust thing me. is very big. Yeah, I think it sounds like what you're talking about is basically being in an environment where you listen to, right, and yeah. your expertise is respected. Exactly. And recently, um, I don't know if you saw one of my most recent posts, mm -hmm. but um, it was about leadership. I said nothing, absolutely nothing, will motivate an employee to be driven and strive for success more than the words "I trust you 100%," mm -hmm. and then doing it. I worked with a, I worked at a place where. There is zero trust, zero trust to the point where we had meetings about the meetings where we're going to talk about the work that we're doing meetings for. And then we're criticized for not doing the work that we're having meetings about because we're always in meetings. Right. You know, here it's like we don't want to be in meetings. We want you to do stuff. So where I was first hired to be a builder, 
um, when I got into and analyzed things, I said, you know, we can build these things, but we'll need bodies. They said, hire them. So I hired two of my yeah. absolute favorite people yeah. in the learning and development sphere. So you've and, got some autonomy and you've got some, yeah. you know, some leeway and you've got, you know, they say, you know, you need some people, take them. So yeah, that's yeah. a, that's, that is a great, that is a dream job. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, the very beginning of my career was like that. Also, I had a lot of autonomy. Uh, basically I was the expert on, on training and, uh, you know, I wasn't second guessed all the time and, People were cooperative and things. It was nice. It was a nice time. But you can be in a situation also where, where, you know, the organization is structured such that nothing happens, and that yeah. can be very frustrating. Yeah. And any and I, I, but one of the biggest thing we were we were having this we were in a meeting and I didn't know that I was going to be expected to say something. Yeah. And a couple of the team, a couple of the division presidents were like, Rick, tell us, you know, tell us what you got going on in learning and development, and. I was caught off guard and I uh -huh. said, you know, one of the things I love about where we are is rather than work harder, we're hiring smarter. And, you know, we're hiring people who are excellent in their fields that we trust. And when you show that trust in your people, when the trust comes down to me, I can trust my people. I can give them projects and they're running off and they want to achieve very well. They want their best stuff to go forward because they're excited that they're trusted. And I'm excited that I'm trusted, so I'm doing the very best to make sure that my leaders look good and that they get exactly what they need. But they also empower us to explore. We've been doing, you know, we were told that we needed to build a particular um, functionality, and we were given the time to analyze it, look at it, find out that there's, that this was, we could build something that would be remarkable in 2005, or if we have the freedom and the opportunity, we could build something that will, that will be, ahead of where where we are now that we can reach to that will greatly make the company more efficient, less redundant, and give people the information and the knowledge that they have to have where they need it, not just when they need it. So having that, but we're still held accountable, of course, right? I, I'm like a, I, I, I tell people that, you know, I love the freedom, I love the autonomy, but I am like the dog that just had the had the gate thrown open on the backyard. That I'm going to be bounding with leaps and joys, chasing the butterflies and bounding in the fields with flowers and bushes. So I, I do need fences. And yeah. tell me where the boundaries are, and as soon as I hit them, I'm good. And yeah. they're really good about that. And they respect yeah. that I know what my limitations are as well, and I want them to give feedback. I want them to attack my ideas. I want that that adversarial approach to new ideas and new concepts because if I just tell you no, this is how it's going to be, I don't know everything, and I don't want to know any everything. I want insight and inputs from the people I work with, whether above me, with me, or below me. I need their input, and then we build a consensus. If I can present an idea and I get attacked left, right, left, right, then and I can defend it all, they're like, this is a great idea, let's do it. Yeah. If they find the hole, thank you for finding that hole because now none of us are going to look stupid when this thing flops on his face because I never considered that. But yeah. you don't find a lot of leaders who are capable of doing that. Um, matter of fact, uh, one, of the, one of the people that works with me, Zoe Sugg, um, she started with me when I started at Endurance International Group. And she was working in a, uh, with a unit where they were training people how to use WordPress through the phone. And she's a cartoonist, and she's a she writes 
comic books. She publishes comic books. She leans forward. She tells the stories. And I fought to get her hired as a content developer on our team. And she's remarkable. She is brilliant. And she does this all the right way. But when she first came into a meeting with me and through the people that I respect and love still who are no longer there, and she heard us talking about this idea, we got done with it. She's like, are you guys mad at each other? I'm like, no, we were having fun. <laughs> that, that was fun. I was like, yeah. yeah, I gave them an idea. They attacked me. I defended it. And we're like, this is great. Let's do it. She's it's like, good communication. Yeah. She's like, yeah. you can do that? You can yeah. argue? I said, yes. I want you to call me out on stuff. I want you yeah. to challenge me. In a lot of if, environments, you can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and if you're in the learning industry and you are, and you reject the opportunity to learn and to hear from other people, you're seriously in the wrong industry. Seriously in the wrong industry. This, if you don't have an innate curiosity, if you're not willing to make mistakes and be wrong and have to take the test over, quote unquote, then mm -hmm. you're not in the right industry. You should go into, you know, putting nuts on bolts or something because this industry is all about learning. I, I have this, I, I have the, you know, I have, sorry, I started like four sentences all at the same time. I absolutely believe that I know that I know nothing. And so I'm not gonna go into any situation assuming that I have all the knowledge. I'm gonna go in confident in the knowledge that I have with the expectation that I have an opportunity to learn when somebody challenges what my preconceived notions are. Hmm. But that might be the philosopher in me too. So I want to ask a question about, uh, about something you're writing about in your blog. Uh -huh. You talk about your son being on the autism spectrum and you have a late life discovery that you have some of the same issues. You've had to work around your whole life. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about it in the context of accessibility, which is, uh, a big issue in instructional design right now, uh, making sure that people of differing abilities have access to training in the same way. I haven't heard about uh, autism or other non-neurotypical profiles being sort of discussed as as targets for that. And I was wondering if you if you account for for that when you're designing training, or if you have any insights into how it might be how it might figure into the design of training. It's really good questions. It's something I think about on a regular basis. I think that uh, um, as far as autism is concerned, one of the primary things that, that, uh, that I believe from my experience and the experience of my son, the experience of some of my friends who are on the autism spectrum, the number one thing you have to feel is safe. If you don't feel safe, that heightens your awareness of your surroundings, which makes you more susceptible to environmental stimuli, which makes it a lot more difficult to filter out all the stuff going on. When I'm in an environment where I don't feel safe, I can hear the fluorescent lights going. I can hear the yeah. conversations throughout the entire building. I can hear the air conditioning kicking on the building outside across the street. I hear all the traffic. I hear the birds. I hear, I hear everything. So all that background noise drowns out a you know, prophet at the pulpit just preaching and PowerPointing you to death. So creating safe environments is probably the number one thing. I think that so many people narrow in on a type of learning. I'm not talking uh, uh, learning types like, you know, kinesthetic and all that trash. I don't believe in learning types. I'm going to say that right mm -hmm. now. But 
I absolutely believe that training that is absolutely as close to reality and doing the job is the best kind of training. I take that from military, I take that from law enforcement, I take that from web hosting. PowerPointing people on how to use software does not train them on how to use software. So I created simulators where we actually go in and create no more than a five minute video, which means you shouldn't have longer than a 20 minute piece of uh, e-learning where they have a five minute see it where somebody slowly walks through and shows the processes and steps to do it. And you have a try it where they have prompts that tell them how to do it and then a do it where they go through and without the prompts have to activate it. You don't need a 10 question quiz at the end of that. The doing it is the quiz. If they can do it straight through without having to restart and go through the other parts a bit, then it's been successful. And I think that if people looked at training more holistically and looked at it as how quickly can I give people the opportunity to do the thing we're training them to do, then you're gonna, you, you resolve a lot of the neurotypical type or the neurodivergent type of issues you come up with in training because it provides multiple ways for them to experience the, the, experience the, the performance that you want them to have. It isn't just watching TV, it isn't just watching PowerPoints, but it's also mm. not just activities or just role plays. There's processes and systems where you incorporate all of that together and try to give people just enough information to the point where they're saturated and then immediately get them into doing that thing and yeah. get them to do it repetitively and then you add on to it. I think some people call that scaffolding. Yeah. But uh, to, in order to build a holistic employee, you build holistic training. Yeah, and, and but, also involve you know things like management to follow up and things like that. So everything isn't just training. Yeah, I have uh, a last question of this part. Sure. The uh, what do you do to keep sane when you're not working? <laughs> um, I do absolutely everything I possibly can. I uh, still do photography. I go on walks with my son. Um, I'm on an international, like I said, an international MagFed paintball team. So. Uh, every second Saturday, I'm out wow. with my team doing uh, paintball games and, and scenario games and such. I read a lot. I read a lot of science fiction when I need to rest my brain, or I read a lot of like military history. Um, I'm starting to read more uh, learning and development stuff. But I just I have an insatiable curiosity and quest for knowledge. It, for being autistic, if there's one thing I'm obsessed with, it's knowing everything. So I'll read research papers, things on physics and science and space, just as quickly as I'll read stupid cat memes. So, All right, that's the two-minute warning. Okay. So to wrap up, I'd like to ask 10 questions that uh, James Lipton used to ask at the end of every interview in the actor's studio. Okay. The idea is just to say the first thing that comes into your mind and not think too much about it. All right? Sure. Okay. So these are just short answers. What is your favorite word? Plethora. What is your least favorite word? Deserved. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Nature. What turns you off? Crowds. What is your the favorite crabby. curse word? My favorite curse word um, lately is Holy Mother of Green. Holy Mother of Green. I've, I've never heard that one. Yeah, I'm trying to, I get creative. 
It's either that or calling somebody a squirrel licker or a trash bag. I'm trying to get out of using curse mm. words. The fact that anything on Netflix and Hulu is all F-bombs now is kind of yeah. disgusting and, and sad. So I'm trying to show I can communicate without using a lot of cursing. Hmm. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Um, white noise, like the sound of a fan yeah. at night. What sound or noise do you hate? People complaining. And what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? If I could do it all over again, there's two things. I'd either be a blues guitarist or I'd be a, an architectural archaeologist. What profession would you like not to do? I have zero interest in anything medical, especially like, like uh, Obgen. I have gynecology. No, thank you. <laughs> or proctology. That's, that's very I'm specific. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't like liquids. <laughs> All right. The last question uh, is a bit of a, a Judeo-Christian origin, but here it is. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I'm absolutely, I believe in God. I am very religious. And the only thing I'd like to hear from God is, good job, buddy. Great. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Appreciate being on. The ID Fanatic drops every Tuesday at noon Eastern time. I hope you're inspired to subscribe. To get notices of upcoming episodes, Sign up at idfanatic.mykajabi.com slash opt-in. You'll also get a free gift of my instructional design cheat sheet. You can contact me, Mitch Moldovsky, on LinkedIn. And I hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs>